Thank you. Wow, thank you so much. Um, thank you guys for having me, and thank you, Ethan. Uh, that was really lovely. I felt the same way when I read your first short stories, where I think the highest compliment you can give a friend who's a writer is um, it's judging by how quickly you forget that they wrote it. Um, and I think it was around sentence three. I'm like, I'm in. I don't. I forgot until the end that I had to give you any feedback. It was amazing. Um, so thank you. Um, I'm very, very happy to be here. Um, I um, realized that the last time I was at Trinity when we were driving up um, was probably to play tennis uh, because I went to school very close by. Um, I went to Connecticut College. Uh, which is just sort of a different version, I think, of, of Trinity. I remember I had a friend who transferred, or a couple of friends who transferred here, which was so funny. It just reminded me of like changing your name from Goldenberg to Goldberg or something like that when you come to this country, because then no one will know. I mean, it's very, very similar. Um, but you guys do have the gift that uh, once you graduate, uh, I guess if, if there's any confusion whatsoever, it'll be between you and Trinity College in, in Dublin, um, whereas I get ask questions about my great basketball team for my entire life. Um, but anyway, uh, so as Ethan said, uh, this is my first novel, and so I'm going to read to you a little bit from it, and then we can um, have a conversation. Um, basically, uh, it's the story, just to give you a, a rough background, um, I'm going to start reading from the beginning, so there's not too much lead up needed for that, otherwise I'd be in trouble about the book in general when you start reading from page one. Um, but it's essentially the story of three friends, and it's told from three different perspectives, two men and, and one woman. And I'm going to read you from, uh, just coincidentally, uh, from the two different guys today. Um, and they sort of reunite about 10 years after college. And they, you know, sort of been speaking, sort of not been speaking, have drifted apart. Um, they've gone to a college that's not terribly unlike this one. Um, but uh, they reunited at a lavish wedding of a friend in Miami. Um, and then basically one of them, through a series of events, I won't spoil for you, uh, becomes obsessed with the idea that the necklace from Guy de Maupassant's famous short story, The Necklace, if you know it, and we can talk about it afterwards as well, um, one of them decides that it's real, even though the point of that short story is that it's fake. Um, but. It's sort of madcap. Um, and they sort of go on this uh, trip to France together to find it, which is probably where Gary's very kind uh, Goonies reference comes in. But for now, um, I'm just going to read to you a little bit um, from The Wedding and Victor's Viewpoint, who is sort of the Eeyore-like, Job-like, sad sack of the group. I was just sort of fascinated by this guy that I found in, in many friend groups where he's not left out, but he is sort of the punching bag. So he's invited, but for what purpose? Um, <laughs> but we love him. Um, and then uh, the next uh, passage I'll read is, is rather short, uh, and that is uh, Nathaniel, who's sort of the not as lovable jerk. And those are fun to write. But anyway, OK, we shall begin. At first, they watched the rain from inside the tent, and then they watched it come inside the tent. A stone path extended from the house to the shore. When the shuttle buses arrived, the stones were opaque, but now they were translucent, the kind of wet that made it difficult to imagine them ever being dry again. Lightning struck the surface of the ocean, and a curtain of hot wind swayed inward at their feet, pushing detached bouquet petals in a row. Victor took a step back 
These were his only nice shoes. Victor had never been on a private island before, which was not shocking. But he had also never been to Florida before, which was a little shocking. True, he was a poorly traveled person, but still, Disney World, spring break, other people's grandparents. Florida had simply slipped through the cracks of his adulthood, like some idiom heard too late. He was under the impression that the rain here was supposed to be extreme but brief, the opposite of, say, Seattle, a place he hadn't been to either. But this, this was a monsoon. The groomsmen's jackets had come off, and the women had grown shorter over the course of the evening. Everyone was buzzed. What time was it, 10 p.m.? Too early to be drunk in real life, but right on schedule for Carolyn Markson's wedding. He heard her cackle in the distance and turned back to face the ocean, letting his mind drift. He was dubious of his environs. Florida, rather the stretch of it he had witnessed from the airport, causeways and condominiums, sunrise liquor and sunset dental, bank branches surrounded by menacing palmetto plants, was trying to trick him into thinking it was a real place. A place where people rode school buses and purchased paper towel in bulk. His table mates took one look at Victor's chowder-fed skin and launched into stories of art and literary fairs, of this country club or that being very, quote, old Florida. But Victor knew from old. He grew up in Massachusetts, home to America's oldest ballpark, strictest landmark laws, and most famous horseback ride. Florida was pretty colonized come lately by comparison. Even the old people here felt new. Victor's parents were in their 60s, but their actual 60s, not their fake 40s. His mother, a substitute teacher, would no longer do stairs and was increasingly vigilant about her rainouts. His father, a land surveyor, had given him a $100 bill and a bottle of You Bet chocolate syrup when he moved to Park Slope with Nathaniel after graduation. This was before Nathaniel fled to Los Angeles, swapping his literary aspirations for centered dialogue. Now Victor lived alone in an alcove studio in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. <clears throat> I think you stole my balls. Victor had returned to his seat to assess the damage to his shoes and found a thick-necked man gripping to a dinner roll as if he had freshly yanked it from the chest cavity of a buffalo. The man pointed at a dish of butter balls. Oh, said Victor, I did. Sorry, I went left. You can have mine. The man sniffed. I think this one has rosemary, and this one is Himalayan sea salt. Sounds good, said Victor. I despise rosemary. Carolyn had arranged the rest of their collegiate circle around a table clear across the dance floor. Victor was momentarily buoyed by the idea that this was an act of faith, suggesting that he was harmless, nay, charming, when foisted upon strangers. Unfortunately, these thoughts were immediately anchored by knowing that it was an act of acquiescence. Carolyn felt obliged to invite him. He couldn't be the only one she left out. Out of some kind of misplaced retaliation, Victor hadn't touched his main course. This put him in a standoff with the catering staff who, out of their own misplaced retaliation, had yet to remove his plate. From this vantage point, Victor could see Nathaniel whispering in Kezia's ear. Nathaniel's jawline had become strangely defined these past few years. It made Victor touch his own jaw to see if jaws were that much of a separate entity on everyone. These days, Nathaniel was also dressing better, 
Foppish, that was the word, wasn't it? Fucktard, that was the other one. His friend had become both of these things. They barely spoke anymore, forcing Victor to make a choice, be a needy girl about it, or ignore it. He chose the latter, but right this second, there was something blocking his path of disregard. Kezia's mouth was so close to Nathaniel's that if she turned, their lips would touch. Her head was bent, chin tucked, listening raptly. She flipped a fork against the tablecloth, as if concentrating on the fork were the only thing keeping her from falling off the chair. <clears throat> no tucks for you? The thick-necked man chewed with his mouth open. I couldn't afford it. Well, the man said, every self-respecting young man should have a tux. Well, Victor lifted his glass. That explains why I don't have one. And where did you say you lived in New York? Brooklyn. Brooklyn Heights is nice, said the man. That it is. And how did you make the acquaintance of the bride? We went to college together, said Victor, the group of us. He gestured around the tent, even though he wasn't sure where anyone was. Kezia and Nathaniel had gotten up. The fork stayed behind. Ah, said the man, so you've known each other since you were babies. A short memory. The night freshman year, when Victor managed to bring Carolyn Markson back to his dorm. When Victor reached between her legs, she hopped off the bed, bent down like a baboon, and showed him her tampon string. Proof for prudeness. Still, he wished his roommates had been conscious. Victor didn't bring many girls home. He was not an attractive guy, he got that. He was wiry and he hunched. His face was horsey but not equine, olive but not Mediterranean. Though on two separate occasions, he had been told that he bore a, a resemblance to the sharp-faced actor Adrian Brody. He was beginning to doubt there would be a third occasion. <laughs> and you and Carolyn went to a co-ed school? I, yes, said Victor. <laughs> we did. Ginny, my wife, went, went, went to one of those glorified lesbian communes. Some all-girls place that should have gone co-ed but didn't practically bankrupt now, always some third-rate yoga instructor on the cover of the alumni magazine. Victor listened as best he could. He was usually okay with being a receptacle for such gripes. It was all feeding a beast that never went hungry, a beast of casual disdain for the wealthy, a socialist tapeworm in his gut that snacked on morsels of humidor and meditation retreat. But enough was enough. Excuse me, Victor put his napkin on his chair. I'm going to go watch the storm. You can't see it from here? I need new ones of these. Victor pushed his glasses up the Sisyphean slope of his nose. The man tightened a cuff link, putting a sprightly spotlight on the wine glasses. Ginny materialized behind them, all smiles and cleavage and lighthearted scolding for, quote, holding this young man captive. Nice to meet you, she said, even though they had not. As Victor squished his way towards the edge of the tent, he spotted Olivia Arellano standing beneath a flickering lantern. God, Olivia Arellano. He thought he had glimpsed the back of her head during the ceremony. Pickled in rum and venom, Olivia looked the same every time he had seen her over the past decade, always wearing the same Olivia uniform. As Kezia once astutely pointed out, you know that girl owns 20 black sweaters as opposed to one frequently recycled black sweater. 
The last time Victor had even seen Olivia's name was a year ago, when Paul Stephenson and Gray Kelly, keepers of the collegiate ideal, newlyweds, chief bangers of the networking drum, had organized a gathering because it had, quote, been too long. Gang, began the email from Paul. It's been way too long. Who's to say, thought Victor, who decides? What heterosexual man uses so many vowels? <laughs> the email was also signed from Gray as if she had typed her own name, like they were children taking turns on an outgoing voicemail. Victor skipped drinks. How a girl like Olivia Arellano had heard of a tiny liberal arts school in New England, never mind applied to it, never mind heard of New England, confounded him to this day. He and Olivia had never been close, and they never would be. Yet even she was tied to him. Olivia Arellano was the first person he met. She struck up a conversation with him while they waited at campus security for their respective room keys. Fresh off the plane from Caracas, she carried a peeling leather trunk that looked as if it contained human bones and asked him questions like, do you think the next four years will be stimulating or do you think we will liken them to jail? <laughs> he had no idea what she was talking about, but her boobs were up to her neck. Olivia was a false advertisement for what college women would be like, a false advertisement for herself even. She was studying him, peppering him with questions not to befriend him, but to determine if he was like her, sophisticado. He was not. He had just come from a house with aluminum siding in Sudbury, Massachusetts. He didn't have a passport. His jackets were North Face, his storage bins, Bed Bath & Beyond, his mother, a Law & Order SVU fan. They accepted their respective keys and headed for separate ends of campus. He watched her glide up the gentle slope of a path, one of the many that would become as familiar as the veins in the back of his hand. Even now, a decade later, he could remember that freshman-specific sensation, like he'd know this girl for the rest of his life and like he'd never see her again. Turns out both hunches were right. That conversation was the longest he would have with Olivia for a solid year. He saw her, of course. Everyone saw everyone. But Olivia did her dating off campus, shunning any man who could be accessed via a four-digit extension. She elective alternative housing, slept with professors, refused to eat in the dining hall, all before losing the revolt and settling down junior year. Half of their class went abroad, but Olivia stayed because she was abroad already. She melded herself into Victor's circle of friends like a blob of mercury, absorbed by the girls, lady advocates who saw some invisible wound in need of tending when they looked at her. Or maybe they just saw another pretty face to squeeze into their photos. He didn't really care about their motivations, not really. Olivia Arellano was never the primary object of his affections. That title belonged to someone else. And by their final semester, none of it mattered. By then, Victor was allowing himself to fantasize about Kezia's face only in profile, never indulging in the dead-on view. By then, he was supposed to have forgiven her for cruelly rejecting his love. Not just forgiven, erased. To forgive was to be in conversation with the past, and well, they couldn't have that, now could they? Caps and gowns had been ordered, resumes sent out, mailbox keys returned. It was in poor taste to acknowledge that college had been anything other than a coming-of-age paradise. By then, they all had one foot out the door, and Victor had gotten himself a passport with a lone Canadian stamp in the middle, dead grandfather in Toronto. That's the beginning.
Um, so that is sad, sad Victor. Um, and now I'm going to read you um, from the perspective of Nathaniel, uh, who has a slightly different outlook on things, though um, perhaps equally analytical, but mostly in his favor. <clears throat> and he lives in Los Angeles. The morning haze had yet to burn off. It was the hour at which Los Angeles feels most like San Francisco. Nathaniel went for a run around the reservoir, kicking up sand and watching women in the dog park. He ran back up the hill, too, the whole way. A month ago, after extolling the health benefits of a life in L.A., excuse me, after years of extolling the health benefits of a life in L.A., something inside his body had turned on him. He felt fatigued no matter how much he slept or how much hot yoga he did. Sometimes he experienced shortness of breath just walking across a studio lot. He was about to turn 30, not 50. So he went to a nutritionist in Inglewood who told him to incorporate more zinc into his diet and drink more water. Then he went to an energy healer who told him more or less the same thing, but tacked on some meditative breathing exercises. Then he went to a kinesiologist who suggested that he keep both of his legs elevated above his heart whenever possible, especially when in the shower. <clears throat> Even when in the shower? No, said the kinesiologist, especially. It all worked for a while, but then one day he was sitting at home, legs up, trying to work, and his vision blurred. The page of dialogue he had just written transformed into impenetrable chunks of black squiggle. His heart started racing like a hummingbird's. That's what he told the cardiologist, who told him that if that were true, he'd be dead. Super dead, the cardiologist clarified. 1,200 beats per minute. Then the man told him that a whale beat would also be cause for concern at six beats per minute, and that giraffes have a second heart in their necks. Apparently, he was leaning toward veterinary medicine before switching to humans. <laughs> the cardiologist conducted the usual tests for abnormalities. It wasn't a palpitation, it wasn't an arrhythmia, it wasn't a panic attack either. Well, Nathaniel could have told him that. He didn't have an office job or a mortgage or kids or girlfriend to panic about, just the steady pressure of being one of Los Angeles's two million aspiring TV writers, as many as a whole day's worth of hummingbird heartbeats. No, Nathaniel's heart appeared to be a dutiful muscle, opening and shutting its valves firmly. So what was it then? At long last, a second electrocardiogram came back, bearing the gift of a diagnosis. Nathaniel had an abnormally small heart. For a guy in the prime of his life, you have an abnormally small heart, said the cardiologist. It's not serious, you're not going to keel over, but it could explain the sudden uneven heart rate and the lightheadedness. Do you smoke? Nathaniel shook his head. Do you exercise? He thought it was pretty clear that he did. He was a naturally slim person, but a belly would appear on his abdomen if he did nothing to deter it. He had been very successful in keeping it at bay. Still, the doctor told him that he needed to get his heart rate up more often. That's why athletes have huge hearts, he said, removing his stethoscope. Nathaniel considered this. He considered the drug and sex scandals that plagued professional athletes. He started to say it, sitting there in his underwear. They're not known for their huge hearts. But then he thought better of it. This doctor had chosen the most symbolic specialty in all the medical profession. He'd probably had it with otherwise intelligent people conflating medicine and symbolism. Nathaniel was no different. 
He knew that if he had received the opposite diagnosis, that of a swelled heart just bursting out of his chest, he would have told anyone who would listen. He would have used it to gain access to the sympathies and beds of women especially, not that he needed the assistance, but man, what a deal sealer. He would have used it to win back the attention, if not the affection, of Bean, a painfully attractive but mediocre actress who had blown him off months ago. Bean was so hot, in one night he went down on her four times and cooed at photos of her new pet bunny in between. He ran faster up the hill. No matter how fast Nathaniel ran, his diagnosis felt more like a verdict. He couldn't escape the symbolism. He had not loved a member of the opposite sex in approximately ever. <laughs> and maybe he never would. And it wasn't just humans for which he lacked passion. His love for a life of writing and literature, once fueled by an intense gut-level admiration for stories and novels, was now fueled by the external forces of fame and wealth. He confused competition with love, and because everyone else in Los Angeles was equally as confused, he felt, for the most part, totally sane. Now he was going to doctors because his heart knew what his mind didn't. He stood next to the refrigerator, refilling his water from the door and panting while his housemate, Percy, went back and forth from the kitchen with a plate of eggs. Nathaniel stood there, sweating, watching Percy add more hot sauce with each trip. Or you could take the bottle with you. When do you leave again? asked Percy. Tomorrow, Nathaniel put his glass down. And whose wedding is this? You don't know her, he said. Girl from college. Kezia? No, random chick, you don't know her. Nonsense, said Percy. I know everyone, old man. Percy went back to watching a movie in the living room, some screener that displayed its screener status every five minutes. Old man. Nathaniel realized that, in addition to the heavy panting, he had been touching his lower back, and so he stopped. That's that. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. I've been like hitting this microphone left and right. Hopefully, it wasn't too feedbacky. Um, so there's, we're missing a, a third uh, leg of the tripod here, which is um, the one who's probably closest to me, actually, um, Kezia, because she's the lady um, who uh, works for a jewelry designer in New York, and jewelry ends up being folded very much into the into the book. And you can kind of tell the hints of Guy de Maupassant and things like that. Uh, a little bit in these early chapters where you have Nathaniel sort of lamenting his his life in short stories that he's traded it in for writing, you know, a show that later turns out to be called Dude Move 2. He wanted to call it Dick Move and no one at the network would let him. So it is called Dude Move. Um, anyway, uh, but with that, uh, I thought we could chat about it. Hello. <laughs> 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 <laughs>